Hi, I'm Whitney, and this is Get Lit. And today we're going to continue talking about the ancient Mesopotamian poem, The Epic of Gilgamesh. So, Gilgamesh and Enkidu are best friends now, and they've decided that they want to go and visit the cedar forest and fight a terror beast. So, the elders of Uruk realize they can't talk any sense into their king. So they at least ask Gilgamesh to let Enkidu take the lead, since he's seen fighting and experienced battle. Which is weird, because I thought his experience thus far consisted of running around in the woods, tending sheep, and, lest we forget, having copious amounts of sex with a prostitute. Probably the elders figure that any man who can have sex for 156 straight hours can easily take down a terrible forest guardian. Probably they are correct. Gilgamesh and Enkidu then go back to Gil's mother, Ninsum. Is it just me, or does she really need to cut those apron strings? After bemoaning the fact that the sun god Shamus inflicted a restless heart on her son, and apparently an umbilical cord of steel, Ninsum conducts a ritual to invoke Shamash's protection over Gilgamesh and Enkidu. She adopts Enkidu as her own son and tells him not to leave Gilgamesh's side until he returns from the cedar forest, no matter how long that may take. Way to not ask for too much there. Enkidu and Gilgamesh make offerings, and Gilgamesh leaves instructions on the governing of the kingdom. No mention is made of the lucky elder who gets to carry on the custom of raping brides on their wedding day. Enkidu does... To his credit, try one last time to convince Gilgamesh that this quest is a very bad idea, to no avail. And so our dynamic duo sets out for the cedar forest. Every few days, they stop to get high and talk about their feelings, or if you want to go strictly by the tablets to perform dream rituals. Whatever anonymous ancient Mesopotamian author, those dudes were high as fuck. Gilgamesh has five ominous nightmares about things like falling mountains, thunderbirds, wild bulls, and death flooding from the sky. Enkidu interprets these nightmares in a favorable light, insisting that they are good omens showing that Gilgamesh will be protected from any danger. I've heard of eternal optimism, but this is ridiculous. If I were on a quest to slay a terror beast, and my questing companion started having dreams about death raining down from above then my recommendation would be to get the fuck out of there. These two dumbasses, however, press on. When they arrive at the forest entrance, Gilgamesh gets scared and starts crying. I'd make fun of him, but really, tears are only logical when one is about to confront a giant terror beast. Shitting one's pants is also logical, but the tablets make no mention of that. Gilgamesh prays to Shamash, reminding the sun god of his mommy's protection ritual, you know, just just in case you forgot, man, he adds. Shamash yells down from heaven that Enkidu and Gilgamesh need to hurry up and enter the forest, because the forest guardian, Humbaba, has taken off six of his seven layers of armor and is therefore vulnerable. Way to blow the whole stealth part of the mission by screaming out the battle plan, Shamash. Enkidu and Gilgamesh realize that the only chance they have to defeat Humbaba is to fight together. They hold hands and enter the forest, looking, I'm sure, just like a pair of five-year-old girls. So our fearless heroes are now in the cedar forest, a beautiful slice of nature with luxurious foliage and extremely pleasant shade. Enjoy it while you can, since these two dickweeds are about to destroy it. 
they start chopping trees down with wild abandon. The poem then answers the age-old question, if a tree falls in a forest, does it make a sound that rouses the ire of a giant monster? The answer is yes. The forest guardian, the aforementioned terrifying ogre, Humbaba, comes to the rescue of his trees and demands that Gilgamesh and Enkidu stop. I never thought I'd say this sentence, but I am firmly on the side of the man-eating ogre here. Enkidu retorts that he and Gilgamesh have no need to fear Humbaba, since two heads are better than one and all that nonsense. Meanwhile, Gilgamesh is cowering behind a tree, desperately making the universal cut it outside to his loudmouthed friend. Humbaba launches into an awesome diss battle with the two interlopers, saying to Gilgamesh, an idiot and a moron should give advice to each other, burn. He calls Enkidu a son of a fish, uh, burn, and promises to feed Gilgamesh's flesh to the screeching vulture. Unfortunately, this last part does not come to pass. Gilgamesh notices that Humbaba's face has been changing throughout these threats and asks Enkidu if he knows the cause. Enkidu responds by asking, Why, my friend, are you whining so pitiably? <laughs> even, even Enkidu is tired of Gilgamesh being a coward. So the great god-king finally comes out of hiding, and he and Enkidu begin their battle. Gilgamesh prays yet again to Shamash. Instead of yelling down, Haven't I helped you enough? Do you want me to just fight the whole damn battle for you? Shamash unleashes thirteen storms against Humbaba. This is not exactly a fair fight. Sensing imminent defeat, Humbaba begs for his life, promising to be Gilgamesh's servant if he lets Humbaba live. Gilgamesh looks to Enkidu for advice, because apparently being two-thirds god doesn't give one the ability to make even one goddamn decision on one's own. Enkidu tells his friend to grind up, kill, pulverize, and destroy Humbaba. Mercy apparently not being one of his strong points. Enkidu drives the point home by encouraging Gil to then erect an eternal monument proclaiming how Gilgamesh killed Humbaba. Enkidu's a manipulative little twat, isn't he? So, anyway, the two heroes kill Humbaba and pull out his insides, including his tongue. Yeah. They then cut down a shitload of trees. What did the cedars ever do to you, Gilgamesh? One of the trees is a giant that scrapes the sky and Enkidu plans to build a big-ass door out of it. Well, that certainly doesn't seem pointless and wasteful at all. After the dynamic duo has obliterated the forest, they make a raft and head for Uruk via the Euphrates, with Gilgamesh holding Humbaba's head. I don't think that's exactly what your friends at home meant when they asked you to bring back souvenirs, Gil. As soon as Gilgamesh and Enkidu return to Uruk, Gilgamesh washes the terror beast blood off and puts on his kingly garments. Apparently, he cleans up real nice because Ishtar, the goddess of sex and war, two great tastes that taste great together, is overcome with lust for him. She begs him to be her husband, promising him a gold chariot, strong animals, and the loyalty and love of kings, lords, and princes. Gilgamesh, however, doesn't take kindly to the idea of being a kept man. He refuses Ishtar's advances, and then goes on to list her former lovers who met tragic fates at her hand. Tammuz, who became a captive of the underworld, a master shepherd whom Ishtar turned into a wolf to be chased by his own dogs, a bird whose wings she broke, a lion whom she captured in a pit, and a stallion whom she whipped and harnessed to control. Apparently, Ishtar is open to all species, 
and may or may not have a teeny tiny sadistic streak. She also screwed over her father's date gardener. And why does the god need a date gardener? Turning him into a dwarf after she pleaded with him to touch her vulva. See why it's fun to read classic literature, kids? Gilgamesh may be a mighty god king, but he's really fucking stupid when it comes to women. Or really pretty much anyone. Probably a simple no thank you would have sufficed. But no, our fearless hero had to go enlist all of Ishtar's sexual conquests and detail just what a cold-blooded bitch she can be. Raise your hand if you think this is a good idea, especially when the woman you're dealing with happens to be a war goddess. To no one's surprise, except maybe Gil's, Ishtar is highly pissed off. She goes to her parents, the sky god Anu and the earth goddess Antum, weeping and begging them to release the bull of heaven to kill Gilgamesh. Anu isn't having it. He says, what is the matter? Was it not you who provoked King Gilgamesh? So Gilgamesh recounted despicable deeds about you. Ishtar is not happy with Daddy's answer, so she threatens to knock down the gates of the netherworld to let the dead go up to eat the living. This is far more effective than the usual daughterly threats, like holding one's breath forever, and Anu is properly frightened. He hands her the nose rope of the Bull of Heaven, and she leads the bull down to Earth. When they reach Uruk, shit starts getting real. The bull snorts three times, creating massive pits and sending 300 young Urukinian men to their doom. Enkidu falls into a pit, but then jumps out and literally grabs the bull by the horns. The bull reacts by spewing spittle and dung. Having spent a lot of time among cattle, I feel safe in saying that this is the most realistic part of the entire epic. Enkidu then calls to Gilgamesh, laying out their battle plan which basically consists of Enkidu holding the bull by the tail while Gilgamesh stabs it in the head. Somehow this plan works, showing that the gods really do look out for idiots, and the boys rip out the bull's heart and present it to Shamash. Shamash's response to this gift is not recorded, but it is most likely something like, Ew. Ishtar climbs up on top of the wall of Uruk Haven and rains curses down on Gilgamesh. Enkidu, ever quick to defend his bestie, wrenches off the bull's hindquarters and flings it in her face. Gross. Ishtar assembles the women of her cult and forces them to mourn over the bull's ass. If I were one of Ishtar's joy girls, I would seriously think about switching allegiance to another goddess at this point. Meanwhile, Gilgamesh rounds up all his craftsmen and have them make a bunch of stuff out of the bull's parts. He then sings a celebratory song about himself and holds a big party in his own honor. Jeez, insecure much? After the party, Enkidu wakes up and asks Gilgamesh, Why are the great gods in council? Gilgamesh, who's been riding the kind of high that one can only get from killing a sacred cow, is like, WTF, dude. Enkidu then proceeds to tell Gilgamesh about the dream he just had. Because if there's one thing everybody loves, it's hearing other people describe their dreams. Unfortunately, Enkidu didn't have a nice dream about, say, being able to fly, or about having sex with a joy girl, or about having sex while flying. Instead, he dreamed that the supreme god Enlil, master of the late forest guardian Humbaba, met with the sky god Anu and the sun god Shamash to decide the fate of our two cedar-hating, bull-mutilating, dumbass adventurers. Anu proposed that one of them must die to even the score. Enlil's suggestion was to let Enkidu die, 
presumably because Gilgamesh on his own poses no threat to anyone except virginal brides-to-be. Shamash, known for his soft spot for humans, especially, apparently, dumb humans, disagreed, pointing out that Enkidu and Gilgamesh only killed under his holy command. And, although it's left unsaid, those guys probably couldn't even kill a chicken without Shamash's divine intervention. So, if you ask me, Shamash deserves the lecture from Anu and Enlil on the dangers of treating humans as peers. Sun God, know thy place. After recounting this dream, Enkidu begins to cry. These dudes cry more than Tammy Faye Baker chopping onions while watching a Lifetime movie. Now, I'm all about men expressing emotion. The uncool part about Enkidu and Gilgamesh is that they also act on their emotions and, you know, start fights and rape people and clear-cut forest for no reason. They rocket right past the planet of we're all human and have feelings, so let's not be ashamed of them, and into the treacherous dark universe of my feelings are facts and I will express and act upon them as such. Enkidu also becomes deathly ill, but I'm thinking that's less retribution from the gods and more copious amounts of sex with a prostitute. Overcome with self-pity, Enkidu begins to curse the spoils of his and Gil's adventures. He begins with the cedar door, which he accuses of being ungrateful. Ah, uh, yes, psychosis is indeed one of the symptoms of syphilis. Gilgamesh basically tells Enkidu that he's batshit crazy, and he tries to convince his friend that the dream was only that, a dream. He promises to pray to the gods for Enkidu's recovery. Enkidu just carries on with his diatribe cursing the trapper who first brought Gilgamesh's attention to Enkidu, and then cursing Shamhat, the prostitute who civilized him. At this, Shamash decides to RSVP to his invitation to Enkidu's pity party. The sun god bellows down to Enkidu, asking why he's cursing Shamhat. After all, without her help, Enkidu would never have met his bestie, Gilgamesh. Enkidu sees the wisdom in Shamash's words and begins to shower blessings upon Shamhat instead. My personal favorites from his long list of blessings are May the soldier not refuse you, but undo his buckle for you. And May the wife, the mother of seven, be abandoned because of you. I really think both sentiments belong on Hallmark cards. The next day, Enkidu recounts another dream to Gilgamesh. In this dream, a demon came and dragged Enkidu into Urkala, the hell-like netherworld where the bodies of the dead exist. Upon entering the House of Dust in Arkala, Enkidu watched as dead kings acted as servants to the gods. Enkidu does not appreciate the delicious irony. Instead, he complains to Gilgamesh that it would have been far more noble to have died in battle rather than just wasting away in the palace. Some people are just never fucking satisfied. Twelve days pass, during which time Gilgamesh is probably subjected to more bitching and moaning, and dream recounting from his friend. Then, finally, Enkidu dies. Now that Enkidu is dead, we're treated to Gilgamesh's mourning. His lamentations begin with an acknowledgement of Enkidu's history as a literal wild man. He neglects to mention that this wild man was created solely to beat Gilgamesh's ass down because of the god king's bride raping ways, but we all know how eulogies tend to gloss over the unpleasant bits. Gilgamesh then implores basically every human, animal, and mineral in the world to mourn Enkidu's death. 
I would say that this is a nice representation of how painful it feels when the world doesn't stop and acknowledge our deep grief over the loss of a loved one. But this is Gilgamesh, who believes that the universe should submit to his every whim. Grieving Gil even has the balls to ask the cedar, which we destroyed in our anger, to mourn Enkidu. Meanwhile, the cedar door is like, please leave me the fuck out of this. Gilgamesh then cuts off his hair and rends his clothes, acting for all the world like a distraught widow. He commands his craftsmen to build a statue of Enkidu, and he places Enkidu's corpse on a couch and invites the people of Uruk to come inside and mourn over the body. And, by invites, I mean most likely forces upon penalty of death. With his best friend dead, Gilgamesh really lets himself go. He doesn't bathe or shave, allowing his body hair to become thick and matted, and he clothes himself in tattered animal skins. Gil has apparently entered into the lesser-known sixth stage of grief, Neanderthal. He begins to panic as he realizes that one day he too will die. Seriously, you're just now figuring that out? And why does everything have to be about you anyway? I mean, I know that this is your epic and all, but still. Confronted with the grim reality of his own mortality, Gilgamesh sets out on a journey to visit the only survivors of the historical Great Flood, Utnapishtim and his wife, who were granted immortality by the gods. This isn't purely a social visit, as Gilgamesh is looking for the secret to immortality. One might think that being two-thirds god would be a good start, but apparently he didn't inherit the live forever gene from mommy. Stay tuned for Gilgamesh's epic journey in which more trees, unfortunately, are killed at his hands. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed.